Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, March 12th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is from the Journal Editorial Board and they write, What time is it at your house? Did you remember to turn your clocks ahead one hour last night? And now for uh, the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Today will be uh, windy with clouds and the high of 27 and a low tonight of 17. Monday will be partly sunny and cold with a high of 28 and a low of 15. Then Tuesday is going to be warmer with a high of 44 and a low of 36. Wednesday will be uh, variable cloudiness with a high of 62 and the low of 35. And then um, Thursday is going to be cooler again uh, with a high of 39 and a low of 14. Our first article is written by uh, Sioux City Journal writer Nick Heitrek and the headline is NAIA Tourney Spurs Surge of Sporting Events in Sioux City. As he travels the country convincing youth sports organizations and clubs to schedule their tournaments in Sioux City, Dustin Cooper does not hesitate to mention the city is well into its third decade hosting the NAIA Women's Basketball Championship Tournament. His targets sometimes know little to nothing about Sioux City, but they know what the NAIA is, and they know if a large college athletic association has kept a tournament here for that long, Sioux City must be doing something right. That speaks volumes to other clubs, to other tournament organizers. That gives people confidence that Sioux City can host a big event, said Cooper, executive director of the Arena Sports Academy in Sioux City. When it first tipped off in Sioux City in 1998, the NAIA tournament was in a class by itself on the city sports calendar. The city hosted no other event of comparable size, drawing 32 teams, since reduced to 16 and their fans from across the country and filling local hotels and restaurants. How things have changed. As the tournament prepares a tip, to tip off Monday for the 26th time in Sioux City, one could argue it's not even the biggest event the city hosts anymore. On any given weekend, it's common to have up to 200 youth basketball or volleyball teams in town for tournaments that fill up courts in two new sports academies, the city's new Expo Center near downtown and the local high schools, bringing in thousands of dollars of revenue to hotels, restaurants, and other businesses. The youth sports boom probably was bound to happen, but the experience Sioux City sports organizers gained from years of hosting the NAIA basketball tournament undoubtedly made it easier for Cooper and his contemporaries at the United Sports Academy in North Sioux City to launch their programs and to bring dozens of competitions to Sioux City. That event probably paved the way for us to be able to host some of these larger tournaments, said Jay Wolf, United Sports Academy facility manager. I just think it shows this is a place people can come and have a successful event. Prior to the NAIA basketball tournament, Sioux City had hosted major events from time to time. NAIA National Championships in Baseball and Golf and the International Softball Congress Men's Fast Pitch World Tournament on a few occasions. The Sioux City Musketeers hockey team and Sioux City Explorers baseball team each had a fan base, but the city's sports calendar was mostly empty of big-time events drawing large crowds to town. 
Sioux City was probably mostly known as a high school sports town. The city had never really taken on an event of national magnitude, said Corey Restra, the NAIA basketball tournament director since 2007. It was a big deal to land the tournament in 1998, and local organizers pulled out all the stops, lining up sponsors and dozens of volunteers to shower the teams and their fans with hospitality. Sioux City embraced the tournament as few cities had, drawing enthusiastic crowds first to the old Sioux City Auditorium and then the newer, larger Tyson Events Center since 2004. NAIA executives obviously liked what they saw, continually awarding the tournament to Sioux City and, in 2008, bringing the NAIA Volleyball Championship Tournament here. That tournament, which runs every December, hasn't left either. Nationwide, people in the sports industry began to take notice. In 2009, Sports Travel Magazine named Sioux City a top sports destination, in part because of the organizational skills displayed each year while running the NAIA tournaments. The stage was set for the growing youth sports tournament circuit to take off. After years of traveling to Sioux Falls, Omaha, and beyond to play in tournaments, Local youth sports organizations, players, and parents were tired of having to leave town for competitions. People started to realize that having to go to Sioux Falls all the time, why not get people here, Wolf said. United Sports Academy opened four years ago, Arena Sports Academy months later. One or both launched programs and club teams in volleyball, basketball, soccer, and dance, as well as individual training in other sports. Their opening, along with the Siouxland Expo Center, now named Seaboard Triumphs Foods Expo Center, which opened in 2020, added dozens of courts the metro area had been lacking to host major youth tournaments. It did not take long for the sports academies to begin attracting tournaments, bringing dozens, sometimes hundreds of teams from as far as Arizona and Montana to Sioux City for three days at a time. Now, tournaments in one sport or another, or sometimes more than one, are taking place about 40 weekends a year. Anymore, it's just another weekend around here. Packed hotels and packed parking lots, Cooper said. Seemingly overnight, Sioux City's become a regular stop on many of the national and regional tournament circuits. Given the rise in the youth sports culture and the opening of two sports academies at roughly the same time, it was inevitable, Cooper said. But if not for the city's history of putting on NAIA tournaments, it may have taken longer to attract some of those youth tournaments. Do I think it would have reached the amount of success as quickly? Absolutely not, Cooper said. To illustrate the influence of NAIA tournaments have had, Restra said an NAIA volleyball coach who also was a major player on the National Youth Club volleyball scene approached him during the NAIA tournament one year. Impressed with Sioux City's ability to host the national tournament, the coach told Restwa he was bringing some of his youth tournaments here. He said, I know Sioux City can support it because they have the hotels, they have the restaurants, and they have the people, Westra said. Through years of NAIA tournaments, a group of people and organizations became well-versed in the logistics needed to run a big-time tournament. That knowledge continues to branch out. There is still a relationship that the success of one led to the success of the others, Restwa said. 
The result, weekends in which local sporting venues and hotels are filled. Westar pointed to a recent weekend in which there was a big youth basketball tournament at the academies, a cheerleading tournament at the Tyson Events Center, the Great Plains Athletic Conference Collegiate Wrestling Tournament at the Long Lines Family Rec Center, and a high school girls basketball sectional at the Tyson. This weekend, the Heartland State Championship Basketball Tournament, run by a national organization, is drawing more than 100 teams from across the Midwest to Sioux City. It is the fourth straight year the tournament has been here. Once people get here and they meet people, they see how vested in it we are and who we are, Cooper, a Sioux City native, has said. That ability to handle a big event, he said, is helping his hometown gain notoriety as a sports town a reputation that can be traced back to that first NAIA women's basketball tournament in 1998. There's going to come a time when there is a tournament in town every weekend, Cooper said. It is a development NAIA tournament organizers never could have imagined 26 years ago. If you asked me in 1998 and said this would all be happening in 2023, Restwa said, I would have told you you are crazy. Iowa Republicans All In on Conservative Agenda Iowa's 2023 legislative session is proving remarkable in terms of the speed and volume of conservative legislation being advanced, according to numerous political observers on both sides of the political aisle. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the House and Senate, Iowa Republicans have felt empowered to push a more conservative agenda this session, one focused on parental rights, school choice, and banning gender-affirming care for minors. It is an agenda being driven by both local and national politics, and which coincides with the 2024 GOP race for president, softening the ground for candidates to campaign on the same theme, said Donna Hoffman, a professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. It is remarkable up the uptick in the speed of bills being brought up, debated and passed very quickly, sometimes without a lot of citizen input, Hoffman said. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds used those larger majorities to double down on and expand her push for school choice legislation. Within the first three weeks of the session, lawmakers fast-tracked and Reynolds signed into law a new $345 million private school financial aid package dramatically more expensive than previous proposals, including one that failed to ha pass the House last year when at least a dozen Republicans, many from rural areas, refused to support the measure. Many were concerned about the effect the policy would have had on schools in their area. Reynolds last summer took the rare measure of endorsing primary challengers to several fellow Republicans who opposed her prior proposal, ultimately leading to the loss of several incumbents. The results were a caucus more supportive of the governor's plan. Since then, Republican state lawmakers had advanced a host of legislation addressing gender policies and curricula in schools, mirroring efforts in other GOP-led states. Three months into 2023, the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ civil rights organization, said it is already tracking 410 anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in state houses across the country, 
of those, 175 would specifically restrict the rights of transgender people, the highest number of bills targeting transgender people in a single year to date. A review from the Human Rights Campaign found that fewer than 1 in 10 of last year's 315 anti-equality bills became law. Corinne Green, policy and legislative strategist at the Equality Federation, an LGBTQ rights nonprofit, said she has witnessed an increase in the variety and novelty of such legislation being introduced in state legislatures, including Iowa. This year, there are more than seven or eight strains or genres of anti-trans attacks that we have seen blanket the country this year, Green said. And Iowa is a state that has received many of the kind of new versions of these bills that we've seen cover the country. In Iowa, a record 29 unique pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation were introduced already this year, said Keenan Crow, a lobbyist with the LGBTQ activist group One Iowa. That, they said, compares with 28 LGBTQ-related bills introduced during the two-year General Assembly in 21-22. We also had more bills go through subcommittee this year than have ever been introduced in previous years, Crow said. To say that this session is laser-focused on LGBTQ Iowans, I think that is even an understatement. State lawmakers last week passed a ban headed to Reynolds for her expected signature that would prohibit Iowa doctors from prescribing puberty blockers or hormone therapy to transgender children under the age of 18. It would also prohibit any surgeries on minors intended to affirm a gender that does not match up with their sex at birth. In the weeks before Iowa lawmakers passed the bill, Mississippi, South Dakota, and Tennessee all enacted similar bans. Other bills that have cleared the Iowa House or Senate would prohibit transgender students from using school bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity and a ban on instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through sixth grade. It has drawn comparisons to Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Law. Lawmakers last week also advanced restrictions on library books, prohibiting school libraries from including books that are not age-appropriate and that contain sexual content, as well as a measure requiring parental consent to accommodate a student's gender transition. A group of about a dozen Ankeny businesses this week released a statement opposing the GOP-backed legislation targeting the LGBTQ population. The group of businesses said the hateful and discriminatory legislation will directly impact our businesses' ability to find and retain employees and customers and to thrive in our state. Kyle Krause, whose family owns a convenience store chain Come and Go, tweeted Thursday, Bills like these aren't just an attack on LGBTQ Iowans, they are an attack on all of us. Megan Goldberg, a professor of political a science at Cornell College in Mount Vernon said it was mind-blowing to see how identical the policies are from state to state. GOP-led states are picking up the same pieces of legislation at exactly the same time, but what's also remarkable is the messaging is not even different, Goldberg said. Republicans are moving the location of policymaking away from the federal government and to the states to counter what's happening federally, she said, noting the same thing occurred during Republican former Donald Trump's administration. We see this resurgence of state power to exert a national agenda, not state-level preferences, Goldberg said. As national conservatives hold Iowa and uh, Florida up as a model to be exported everywhere else, Iowa and Florida are 
two states that saw a statewide red wave in the November midterm elections, bucking the tread seen in other states where the GOP fell short of expectations. The big thing that is causing Iowa, Florida, and other states to deal with these issues result from the pandemic, which forced parents into dealing with students' schoolwork more directly, and a lot of times the parents did not like what they were seeing, said Tim Hagel, a professor of political science at the University of Iowa. Now, all of a sudden, we are seeing a result of that. Can candidates actively pursuing or considering campaigns for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination are already picking up on such themes as they visit the lead of presidential caucus state? Trump is scheduled to stop in Davenport Monday for an event billed as an education policy speech likely to touch on parental rights. Trump's former Vice President Mike Pence also picked up on the parental rights theme during a rally in Cedar Rapids last month. Republican South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott visited a Catholic school in Des Moines with Reynolds, where he applauded the governor for her leadership in passing a private school funding bill that creates state-funded scholarships that Iowa families could use to send their children to private schools. Seeing the power of school choice, knowing that these kids have an unlimited future to the extent that we can capitalize that and share it and spread it, it's good news for the country, Scott told the reporters during his visit. Republican presidential candidate and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley penned an op-ed stating America needs to be more like Iowa. Iowa is strong and proud because of its education leadership, Haley wrote. When Governor Kim Reynolds signed education savings accounts into law earlier this year, she gave families the freedom to choose the school that's right for their children. I fought for that same freedom as governor of South Carolina, and I'll deliver it nationwide as president and I'll make sure no politician can close our schools ever again. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been successfully promoting or passing many of these same policies, held events Friday in Davenport and Des Moines with Governor Reynolds. Reynolds, during a Q&A with DeSantis in Davenport Friday, acknowledged Republican governors are competitive with each other and said Iowa lawmakers have passed or are working on many of the policies Florida has enacted. Democrats have argued they're seeing a ramping up of hyperpartisan legislation this year, and the agenda being proposed is out of a national playbook rather than responding to the needs of the state. They are answering to the far right. They are answering to their base, and they are answering to special interests, House Minority Leader Jennifer Confers, Democrat from Windsor Heights, told reporters Thursday. And frankly, I believe they've gone too far this year, and it's our job to hold them accountable for that this year and into election season. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat from Coralville, echoed Confers. This is obviously a disappointing and dispiriting week in the legislature, Walls said of the passage of divisive, mean-spirited bills over the objections of concerned Iowans. These are not bills that are going to help Iowans or strengthen our state, Walls said. It's all about scoring political points, settling political scores, and punching down on vulnerable Iowans. It definitely will not make our state a more welcoming and attractive place to live by attacking and marginalizing people for being different or going after health care providers who are trying to help prevent kids from killing themselves, Wall said. Iowa Senate Republicans last week also advanced a roughly 16,000, page government reorganization bill filed by Reynolds that would shrink the number of state agencies and create more agency leaders who are appointed by the governor and subject 
to Iowa Senate confirmation rather than being elected by state boards or commissions. Democrats called the bill a power grab by the governor, arguing on the Senate floor the bill would reduce government oversight and hurt the quality of government services for some Iowans. Reynolds has said she's not trying to accumulate power and that the more move is intended to reduce the size and cost of government and increase efficiency. The conservative trend of the current crop of Republicans can be traced back, in part, to the June 2022 primary, said Chuck Hurley, vice president of the conservative Christian organization The Family Leader. I don't think you can overstate June 7th and the importance, but the governor played a big role, in some cases a precipitous role, in the primaries, Hurley said. Republican success later last year on election night sweeping congressional offices, growing majorities in the legislature, and nearly sweeping statewide offices also gave Reynolds strength going into this session to lay out a more conservative agenda. She came into this session with a lot of momentum and a lot of influence, Hurley said, a lot of gravitas. And I, so I would say the governor is probably the main reason things are more conservative. With 64 Republicans in the House and 34 in the Senate, the party also has a cushion to lose votes from its more moderate members on major votes. Nine Republicans broke with the majority party on a vote creating the expansive private school assistance bill in January, and six Republicans voted against a measure to ban gender-affirming care for minors last week. There's not, apparently, an appetite within the Republican Party to push back on the governor's priorities, said Hoffman, the UNI political science professor. Last session saw some successful attempts at advancing a social agenda passing laws in 2021 and 2022 prohibiting the teaching of divisive concepts in Iowa public schools related to racism and sexism and prohibiting transgender females from participating in girls' high school sports and women's college athletics. There was an intervening election. The voters of Iowa did not push back on those things Republicans want, Hoffman said. They are going all in on that agenda. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley said Republicans were open about their agenda in their campaigns and have followed through on the things voters elected them to do. Private school assistance was a major part of Reynolds and other Republicans' elections campaigns. We feel as long as we're being transparent and the things we are really campaigning on and they know are part of the things that we want to focus on that we have to follow through with the commitments that we made, Grassley said. So I would not necessarily look at that as the caucus being significantly more conservative, but we had a lot of members that did run on an issue like school choice. Iowa voters in November elected the first supermajority in the Iowa Senate in 50 years. The Senate has consistently implemented policies to empower parents and their children's education over the last six years, but this year we made the most significant achievement to date to reach that goal by passing school choice, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford, Republican from Grimes, said. This session has had and will continue to have many more major successes on conservative, pro-growth, pro-children policies like the previous six sessions. We'll now move to the opinion page, and the first is an editorial and headlined, Government Transparency is More Important Than Ever. And the following editorial is being published throughout Iowa in support of newspapers printing legal notices and the transparency they provide. Some members of the Iowa Senate do not think that public notices published in newspapers remain relevant and necessary. 
A bill filed in the newly formed Technology Committee just over a week ago moved through committee in two days and last week moved through the Ways and Means Committee in one day. Senate File 546 would result in removing a major component of government transparency. This legislation would require legal notices to be posted on a website controlled by a very government legal I'm sorry, I read that wrong. This legislation would require legal notices to be posted on a website controlled by the very government legal notices are designed to oversee, and notices would not be required to be published in a local newspaper. This is the wrong move today, tomorrow, and for the future. Government transparency is more important than ever. In truth, it is critical. While the Sioux City Journal and other Iowa newspapers have an economic interest in seeing that the public notice publishing requirement remains, the issue goes far beyond a few dollars. Maintaining the legal requirement to publish government actions and meetings in local newspapers is crucial for ensuring accountability and keeping the public informed of important information that affects people's lives. And it is the job of our local newspapers to serve as a check on the government, not the government to check itself. The proposed savings under the guise of modernization would come at a very high cost to Iowa communities. While many people now browse digital platforms for information, including the SiouxCityJournal.com, not everyone has access to the internet or the technological know-how to navigate online platforms, and the staggering amount of information available online representing every viewpoint, degree of accuracy, hidden agendas, and motivations from every philosophy and side of the political spectrum makes it more and more likely public notices posted online would be lost among the shaft. Worse, they may be vulnerable to manipulation or not easily accessible through search algorithms. By publishing public notices in newspapers, government bodies can ensure that critical information is available to everyone in a format that has stood the test of time for accuracy and accessibility. It requires governments provide timely information for citizens to participate in their government. The notices are appearing in the communities in or very near where the decisions are made. Public notices cover a range of activities, bids and leads for public projects, minutes from governmental meetings, foreclosures, petitions, election information, water quality reports, and other information that is important to citizens and vibrant communities. The basis for public notices published in newspapers remains as important as ever. Requiring an independent third party to publish the notices in accordance with the law helps prevent government officials from hiding information they prefer the public not to see. The government cannot be in charge of holding itself responsible. A public notice must be published in a forum independent of the government. As an independent and neutral third party, a newspaper has economic and civic interest in ensuring that the notice delivery requirements are followed. Publishing the notice in a newspaper ensures that the information is widely accessible to the public. Unlike social media or other online platforms, newspapers are trusted sources of information that are available to everyone, regardless of whether or not they have access to the internet or social media accounts. This helps to ensure that all members of the public have an equal opportunity to be informed and involved in government decision making. 
A public notice must be archived in a secure and publicly available format. Newspapers have always fulfilled this requirement because a public notice published in a newspaper is already archivable and accessible. This is particularly important for notices that contain information about government decisions and actions that impact individuals and communities for years to come. Requiring governmental bodies to publish legal notices in newspapers ensures that this information is always accessible. The public must be able to verify that a legal notice is not altered after being published. In a newspaper notice, an affidavit is provided by the publisher, which can be used as in an evidentiary proceeding to demonstrate that a true copy was published, as well as the exact wording that was used. Legal notices published in newspapers are subject to public scrutiny and can be easily monitored by journalists or concerned citizens. This guarantees that governmental bodies are held accountable and acting in the best interests of their constituents. Community newspapers have established relationships with readers and have a deep understanding of the issues and concerns that matter most to them. When public notices appear in newspapers, government bodies can tap into these relationships. Newspapers have a long history of serving as watchdogs for their communities, holding local officials accountable and shining light on issues that might otherwise go unnoticed. By requiring government bodies to publish public notices in newspapers, we are ensuring that these important watchdog functions are preserved and that the public has access to information that might otherwise be hidden from view. Many newspapers also publish public notices on their websites, and nearly all public notices across the state are also uploaded to a centralized website at iowanotices.org, a site run by newspapers at no additional cost to government or taxpayers. It is available for those who prefer accessing an electronic version. There may be parts of the country where newspaper readership is receding, but not in Iowa. Iowa has 241 community newspapers, with one or more newspapers in every county. Market research conducted in 2022 showed 84% of Iowa adults read local print or digital newspapers, and newspaper readers are more engaged in their community. Newspapers reach 93% of Iowans who report, I feel that I have a responsibility to help share the future of my community. It is true that newspapers charge a nominal fee set by Iowa law for publishing legal notices. That is a very small price for freedom, as it is typically under 1% of any government body spending. All Iowans should demand more scrutiny of government affairs, never less. While the bill does not prohibit local government bodies from publishing public notices in newspaper, it removes the current requirement for doing so. Removing the legal requirement would most certainly result in local governments dis discontinuing all public notice publications in their local newspapers. But the long-term costs communities and citizens would pay far exceed the price paid by government bodies to publish legal notices in newspapers. We believe that requiring governmental bodies to continue publishing legal notices in local newspapers is crucial for ensuring transparency, accountability, and accessibility in government decision making. Newspapers, especially Iowa newspapers, remain a trusted source of information that is widely accessible and easily searchable. As a newspaper, we strongly urge Iowa senators to vote no on this short-sighted bill, as should all Iowans. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, March 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. 
Jero Eli Jones of Sergeant Bluff was born June 30, 1972 in Wayne, Nebraska to Harold Sr. and Margaret Cavanaugh Jones. He passed away unexpectedly at his home Friday, February 24th. Services will be held at 3 p.m. on Sunday, March 19th at United Methodist Church in Tecama, Nebraska. Arrangements are with the Peelan Funeral Services in Tecama. Gerald attended Tecama Herman Schools and graduated, graduated in 1991. He loved his family, his children, and his grandchildren. He enjoyed watching all their sports. He loved working on old pickups. He was a jack-of-all-trades, construction, remodeling, farming, and mechanics. He was a hard worker. No project was too big for him. When someone needed help, he was right there to lend a hand. Gerald married Angela Anderson in December 2007. Memorials may be made to the family for future designation. Mary L. Musselman, 93, of Sioux City, passed away Thursday, March 9th, at her residence surrounded by her loving family. Services will be at 11 a.m. on Tuesday at Wesley United Methodist Church at 3700 Indian Hills Drive. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Arrangements are with the Nelson Berger Northside Chapel. Mary was born in Sioux City to Henry and Bess Kruger on June 28, 1929. Mary grew up in Sioux City and graduated from Leeds High School in 1947. She married her high school sweetheart on May 10, 1947 in Omaha, Nebraska. They were blessed with seven children, Gary, Charlene, Wendy, Ted, Vicki, Brian, and Randy. Mary was a lifelong member of Wesley United Methodist Church where she was a member of Joy Circle, Choir, Salt, and many other groups and activities at the church. Mary was a very hard worker. She held positions at 75 Truck Stop and Shessler Hall, but her most favorite place of employment was Lunch Lady at North High School. She just loved those kids. Mary was a mother to many, friend to more, and an enemy to none. In lieu of flowers, Mary has asked donations be given to Wesley United Methodist Church. Thomas J. Olson, Sioux City, 57, died Wednesday, March 8th. Services will be March 25th at 10.30 a.m. at the Immaculate Conception in Sioux City. Burial will be at Graceland Cemetery, Sioux City. Visitation will be March 24th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel in Sioux City. Jean L. Lambert, Sioux City, 95, died Saturday, March 11th. Services will be March 15th at 11 a.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at the Logan Park Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior to service at the funeral home. George A. Pithen, 96, of Sioux City, passed away Friday, March 3rd. Services will be 9.30 a.m. on Monday at Southern Hills Baptist Church with Reverend Bob Dillman officiating. Visitation will be from 2 to 5 today at Christy Smith Funeral Homes at Morningside Chapel with a time of sharing at 4 p.m. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Mr. Pithen was born August 10, 1926 in Denison, Iowa, the son of Joseph and Beulah Pithen. He attended grade school and junior high school in Denison until his father's death. He then moved with family to Sioux City, where he attended East High School, graduating in 1944. While in high school, he enlisted in the Iowa State Guard, which was preparing him for his later military career. 
After high school graduation, he entered the United States Army. His basic training was at Camp Robinson, Arkansas, after which he was sent to the Philippine Islands. When Japan surrendered, he was sent to Japan for occupation duty. While in Japan, he re-enlisted and returned home to train recruits at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, until his discharge. After his discharge from the Army, he continued to serve in the Army Reserve until his retirement in 1986. He retired from the military with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. During his military career, he was awarded the Service Medal, the Good Conduct Medal, the American Defense Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Medal with Luzon Battlestar, the World War II Victory Medal, the Japan Occupation Medal, and the 30-Year Reserve Force Medal. As a final note to his military career, Colonel Pithen was a participant in the 2009 Sioux City Honor Flight to Washington, D.C., thanks to Kathy Muller and others. Colonel Pithen's wife, Joanne, received a certificate of appreciation from the Department of the Army for her unselfish, faithful, and devoted service. Not only did Colonel Pithen have a military career, he also had a lengthy teaching career. He received his bachelor's degree from Morningside College. While in college, he met the love of his life, Joanne Will of Aurelia, Iowa. They were married in 1949. Mr. Pithen began his teaching career in Westfield. He later taught at Sergeant Bluff and in the Sioux City Schools at North Junior, Riverside Junior, and final years at Herbert Hoover. He retired from teaching in 1988. After his retirement from teaching, Colonel Pithen became a member of the Civil Air Patrol. He became the commander of the unit. Later, the Pithens moved to Missouri, where he was a member of the Coast Guard Auxiliary. He became the flotilla commander and was active with many boat inspections. While in Missouri, he and his wife were active in the show and museum in Branson. After 15 years, the couple moved back to Sioux City to be with their families. Memorials in his name may be directed to the Southern Hills Baptist Church or to the family. Sylvia A. Utalt, 81, of McCook Lake, passed away Saturday, March 4th, at her home, surrounded by her family. Services will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday at Waterbury Funeral Service at 4125 Orleans Avenue. The family will also have a celebration of life on June 27th at Sylvia's home in McCook Lake. Sylvia was born June 27, 1941, in Sioux City, the daughter of Betty Williams and Troy Buddy Graves. She is, um, Okay, that's the end of that one. So. Anne F. Morrison, Sergeant Bluff, 85, died Wednesday, March 1st. Uh, services will be March 31st at 11 a.m. at United Methodist Church, Sergeant Bluff. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be March 31st from 9 to 11 a.m. at the church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sergeant Bluff. Robert L. Larry Neal, North Sioux City, 75, died Thursday, March 2nd. Services will be March 18th at 11 a.m. at the Dakota City United Methodist Church. Burial will be private at a later date at the Dakota City Cemetery with military honors. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Maynard H. Alquist, 95, joined the love of his life, Betty, on Monday, March 6th in Sioux City. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel, 1801 Morningside Avenue, with a prayer service at 7 p.m. 
Uh, service will be at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at First Baptist Church in Climbing Hill with burial to follow in West Fork Township Cemetery. Maynard Harold Alquist, the son of Harold and Verna Alquist, was born September 10, 1927 in Lawton, Iowa. He graduated from high school in Bronson in 1947. On November 24, 1950, Maynard was united in marriage with Betty Boggs in Bronson. Betty died November 8, 2011. He formed until 1972, also drove a cement truck for Fullerton Lumberyard, later Mobile Lumber, for 22 years. Maynard retired in 1992, but continued to work, along with Betty, as proud caretakers of the West Fork Township Cemetery and as a handyman around town. Maynard was a member of First Baptist Church in Climbing Hill, serving as a board member and a 4-H leader from... He enjoyed woodworking playing cards and Minnesota fishing and South Dakota snowmobiling trips with family and friends. Maynard and Betty enjoyed many sporting activities with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You could see Maynard in his yard mowing on his John Deere tractor or sitting on his bench looking over his plant plantation. Jean Mulgrid, 91 of Sioux City, passed away peacefully on Thursday, March 9th. Services will be 4 p.m. on Friday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel in Sioux City. Private family burial will be at Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be from 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday at the funeral home. Jean Mulgren was born in, on May 12, 1931 in Charles City, Iowa to Carl and Faye Schaefer. She graduated from Charles City High School in 1949 and married Leonard Dale Mulgren on February 3, 1951 at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Charles City. Jean was a member of Blessed Sacrament Parish in Sioux City and was the past president of many service clubs, including the International Toastmistress, Ottawa Newcomers, St. Joseph Hospital Auxiliary, Sioux Comers Welcome Wagon, and the Sioux City Boat Club Ladies Association. She also served as the co-chairman for the Dakota Dunes Country Club Ladies Association. She was a 25-year volunteer and honorary chairperson for the Siouxland Senior Open, a charity event benefiting Sunrise Community and Alzheimer's. Jean was an avid golfer. She had three holes in one and won many club championships, including the Burlington Golf and Country Club and the Sioux City Boat Club. For many years, she acted as the volunteer coordinator for both the Dakota Dunes Open and the Nike Tour. She was famous for her taco parties, first day of school gatherings of friends where she made her delicious homemade cinnamon rolls, bridge parties, and her Swedes. She loved her Wednesday lunch gatherings with friends, and which would conclude on her home porch at 2219 Jackson Street. Jean's family would like to thank the staff at Brickford of Sioux City for the wonderful care they provided her. Jean will be greatly missed by her many friends and family. Patricia E. Arnold, 86, of Sioux City, died Wednesday, March 8th. Services will be at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesday, led by Pastor B.J. Van Kalsbeek at Sunnybrook Community Church, 5601 Sunnybrook Drive. Visitation will be at 10.30 a.m. Luncheon at 12.30 p.m., followed by a gravesite service at Graceland Park Cemetery. Services are provided by Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel, Sioux City. Born in Sioux City, she grew up on farms in South Dakota near Jefferson, Elk Point, and Meckling. Her parents were George and Adelaide Westmore. She was the fourth of five children. 
At school in McLean, she met her husband of 63 years, Robert W. Arnold. They were married in 1954 in Vermilion, South Dakota, the year she graduated high school. One year later, Bob and Pat drove to California to start a new life, but soon returned and settled down in Sioux City instead. While Bob worked at First National Bank, Pat raised their five young children at home. Later, she also worked at Penny, selling real estate and running the Wetmore Declamation Bureau, started by her great aunts Frankie and Ray Wetmore for 30-plus years. What Pat loved best were God, her family, playing the piano, knitting and crocheting and reading books. At Morningside Baptist and Central Baptist Church, she played piano for services and choir and for annual Christmas cantatas and the living Christmas tree. In the 1980s, she played piano for the Sergeant Bluff Pioneer Valley Day Players as they put on Broadway musicals. Her church activities included taking attendance and listening to Bible verses at Awana, founding the Monday Morning Fellowship Coffee Hour, and helping with Sunday School and Vacation Bible School. When her children were young, she hosted a Good News Bible Club in their home. For 20 years, she hosted a Super Bowl party for family and friends, giving much thought and effort to planning the menu and activities and buying prizes for giveaways. And that concludes the obituaries for today. We will now move back to the opinion page and letters to the editor. The first letter is from Mark Solheim of Sioux City. And Mark writes, I did not realize that crime was so bad that the Sioux City Police Department needs a tank. Well, not really a tank, but an armored car. I have to ask, how will this armored car be used? Will it help with the transients sleeping in the lobbies and stairwells of downtown apartments? How many speeders will it catch? I imagine that the police department will put it, will use it in parades like Putin does in the Red Square, but what good is it really going to do? I have somewhat kept up with the news in Sioux City and the surrounding area, and can, I cannot recall where an armored car has ever been needed. I believe that this $250,000 can certainly be put to better use. There is other equipment that the police could find better use than an armored car that has never been needed as of yet. This letter again was from Mark Solheim of Sioux City. Our next letter is written by Rose Mather of Yankton, South Dakota, and Rose writes, People are not against ethanol. They just oppose the damage from moving CO2 through confiscated land and high-pressure hazardous pipelines and then claiming those privately owned CO2 pipelines are for the public good. CO2 pipelines are not needed. Ethanol plants need to deal with the CO2 on site. They should also be looking at the many new uses, markets, as well as the methods of transporting the CO2. They should be working with the hands that feed them and not promoting the taking of their land. When ethanol plants convert, sell, and transport CO2, they know they eliminate some CO2. They also know that corn and other Iowa vegetation absorb CO2. Large manufacturers in populated, non-farming areas pay farmers for carbon credits, but Iowa ethanol plants are getting corn carbon credits for free. Scientists are just now trying to put a number of how many tons per acre corn absorbs. Climate smart practices should receive priority in 2023 to remove even more CO2 from the air. Many of these practices are already in use and they are not hazardous. New farming methods help increase absorption. In a short time, ethanol will be considered a green, renewable, sustainable fuel. Summit and other CO2 pipelines need to act fast before the 45Q tax credit money deadline 
and new CO2 uses as well as safety issues and restrictive laws are in place. These pipelines are temporary and will probably be obsolete before any construction is completed. Some had even mentioned selling in their easements. Uh, the, again, this letter was written by Rose Mather of Yankton, South Dakota. The next letter is from Greg Nooney of Sioux City, and Greg writes, 60% of Iowans surveyed believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases. In spite of abortion still being legal in our state, Walgreens has succumbed to the anti-abortion folks and decided to no longer provide the medication mifprostane in Iowa because it can be used to induce an abortion. As reported by Tom Barton in the journal on March 5th, two bills were introduced by Republicans in the Iowa's House to restrict abortion in Iowa. House File 146 sets up 10 years imprisonment, the same as distribution, distributing heroin for the distribution of mifepristone. House File 510 defines the destruction of a fertilized egg, with some exceptions, as an act of murder. The Republican leadership does not support either bill, yet preferring to wait on a ruling from the Iowa Supreme Court on the constitutionality of a bill that would ban abortions past six weeks when the embryo is so tiny it can barely be seen by the naked eye. As a member of the First Unitarian Church of Sioux City, I support reproductive rights and would refer the reader to our church's statement on, the, on our website at SiouxCityUU.org, which states in part, the first principle of the Unitarian Universalist faith is that we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. A decision that takes away a woman's reproductive rights, bodily autonomy, and access to life-saving procedure is in direct conflict with this principle. Again, this letter was written by Greg Nooney of Sioux City. And our last letter today is written by Kevin Kukul of Kingsley, Iowa. And Kevin writes, Chairman of the Federal Reserve Jerome Powell is certainly correct that raising the cost of borrowing money will curb the demand for goods and services, reducing inflation. On the other hand, President Biden wants to flood the market with $400 billion of student loan forgiveness and increase inflation, one step forward, two steps back, as the recession closes in on us. Again, this letter is written by Kevin Krukel of Kingsley, Iowa. We now move to an article by one of the Sunday regulars, Cherise Yanni of Sioux City, who is the owner and managing partner of Guarantee Roofing, Siding, and Insulation Company. She serves on the Siouxland Initiative Executive Committee, the Orpheum Theater Preservation Board, the Orpheum Theater Endowment Board, and the Iowa Department of Transportation Commission. And today she writes uh, with the headline, March is a month to celebrate women, cultures, and religion. March is a busy month for Siouxlanders. March was designated by the United States Congress in 1987 to celebrate women during the month of March. The March 8th was International Women's Day. The day started as a local celebration in Santa Rosa, California in 1978 by the Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women. They planned and executed a Women's History Week, according to the Library of Congress. They designated the week of March 8th to correspond with Women's Day. The following year, the movement spread across the country as communities initiated their own celebration. In 1980, women's groups and historians led by the National Women's History Alliance successfully lobbied for national recognition. 
February 1980, President Jimmy Carter issued the first presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8th as National Women's History Week. Presidents continue to declare the week of March 8th as National Women's History Week until Congress passed a public law designating March as Women's History Month in 1987. Another festival on March 8th, the Holy Festival. Millions of Eastern Indians celebrate by dancing to the beat of the drum, smearing each other with green, yellow, and red colors, and exchanging sweets in homes, parks, and streets. It is known as the Festival of Colors, Festival of Spring, and Festival of Love. It is one of the most popular and significant festivals for Hinduism. It celebrates the eternal and divine love of the god Radha and Krishna. It also signifies the triumph of good over evil. Holly, and that's spelled H-O-L-I, celebrates the arrival of spring and the end of winter, blossoming of love. It is time to forget and forgive whatever upsets you. Time to start anew. It is one of the most popular festivals, according to the Associated Press. It is an opportunity for people to come together, forget resentment and ill feelings towards each other. In my opinion, that is what we should be doing as we enjoy all of the different culture celebrations. May, March 12th is a day to celebrate the many cultures we have in Siouxland. There is probably more diversity than one may think. Celebrating all of the cultures is a wonderful thing for our community leaders to do. It is a great way to learn about one another and build stronger bonds among us through music, dance, and food. Join in the Sioux City Convention Center between noon and four today. Then, of course, there's March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, where whether folks are Irish or not, many celebrate the day. Many wear something green as well as shamrocks, bar hop, and drink green beer and eat corned beef. However, the day is really about something deeper than eating and drinking. It is a day of the Festival of St. Patrick, a culture and religious celebration held on March 17th, according to Wikipedia. He is the foremost patron saint of Ireland. St. Patrick's Day was made an official Christian feast day in the early 17th century and is observed by the Church of Ireland, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Lutheran Church. The day commemorates St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity in Ireland, according to Wikipedia. March 22nd begins Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, observed by Muslims worldwide as a month of fasting, prayer, reflection, sand community. It is one of the five pillars of Islam and lasts 29 to 30 days from sighting on the crescent moon to the next one. Muslims believe that spiritual rewards of fasting are multiplied during Ramadan. Fasting from dawn to sunset is obligatory for all adult Muslims who are not ill, traveling, breastfeeding, or diabetic. Muslims hold that all scripture was revealed during Ramadan, the scrolls of Abraham, Torah, Psalms, Gospel, and Quran having been handed down on the 1st, 6th, 12th, 13th, and the 24th. It is believed Muhammad received his first Quranic revelation on one of the five odd-numbered nights that fall during the last 10 days of Ramadan, according to Wikipedia. They believe fasting is also necessary for believers to have the fear of God. Muslims say the pre-Islamic pagans of Mecca fasted on the 10th day of Maraham to rid sin and avoid drought. Some believe the observance of Ramadan fasting is because of the strict Lenten discipline of the Syrian churches. I would be remiss if I did not talk about the Women Aware Bank. Women of Excellence. It takes place March 24th at the Marriott Riverfront. The banquet is put on by the Women 
aware nonprofit organization. The organization is dedicated to transforming the emotional and economic future of women and men in transition through advocacy, education, information, and referral. Women Aware helps by removing the barriers that stand between individuals and their goals, both long-term and short-term. The month of March affords us the opportunity to celebrate other cultures as well as women. Hopefully you participate in some of the activities and remember to do so safely. Again, this was written by Charisse Yanni of Sioux City, one of the Sioux City Journal Sunday regulars. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, March 12th. I'm Dogna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.